the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up we hear that the Israel-Gaza war has taken a terrible toll on agriculture. Around half of the, of the agriculture um, growing in, the, in this part of Israel uh, is absolutely mess. It, it's a war zone so all the areas are, most of the areas are unreachable for the moment. The people, the ground, the ground workers, the field workers, even the type workers that, that came to Israel to work and provide to their families, most of those people are gone. We'll hear more about that shortly and also as our uh, part of our series of outside broadcasts this week, yesterday the Country Hour was in Condoblin. Now the Rural and Regional Women's and uh, Youths Conference was held and 150 people turned up from all over the state to hear from uh, inspiring women also chew the fat bounce around some ideas and listen to the wisdom of others. Now, Tim Fuchs and I yesterday caught up with some of the uh, inspirational attendees at the event and also uh, talked about the farming season so far, which, as you'll hear, for many in the region, well, it uh, could have been a lot better. And we're broadcasting today from Condoblin. We're here for a special event. Uh, Tim Fuchs is here with me. Uh, the Rural and Regional Women's and Youths Conference uh, put on by Central West Farming Systems. And Tim, I mean, lots of people here. I mean, it's a pretty popular event. Yeah, I think we heard about 150 people have come along to Condoblin, some from the local area, but also further afield as well. Uh, hearing today all sorts of people speaking about their own experiences, either on the land or off the land, uh, dealing with issues, obviously, with, um, with the current season, but also things like mental health, other challenges, uh, even book work, book keeping which is such an important role on the farm as well so uh yeah about 150 people from uh, all around the state here today and well, well let's have a chat to some of them here let's move over now and talk to freddie collis who's local uh, um good afternoon welcome to the country out welcome to condo yes indeed <laughs> it's, it's great to be here now i suppose first of all uh why do you think these sorts of events are important Oh, I love these sorts of events. Um, I live 70 k's out of Condoblin and it's just, there's not a lot of girls. So good to come in and catch up and, you know, hang on and catch up a bit later. Yeah, it's great. Any particular speakers or, you know, information you're interested in hearing or it's just a sort of camaraderie? Oh, no, it's all good. Claire that was just on um, Women on Board, she was amazing. Like, you just don't know what's around. And, and Di just has this knack of getting everybody together and making such an interesting day of it. Di Fear, of course, who's uh, the CEO of Central West Farming Systems. Let's talk about the season. Uh, less than ideal, I would imagine, this, this year. An indication of that, I actually went to a Grain Corp meeting this morning before I came here, and I was talking to Phil, one of the marketers, and he said he was at Lake Jellico last night, which has been quite good with rain, and they had about 40 or 50 people. This morning at Condo, we had 10. So, uh, yeah, it kind of is an indication of what our area is doing. So uh, the rain that came was just too late? It was. It was very unfortunate, a bit sad, because we had such good subsoil moisture last year after the floods and, you know, a different harvest, and we just didn't get the rain when we needed it. 
And, and uh, yeah, there don't seem to be too many crops left driving around. You know, people have, yeah, they've, they've given up the ghost on them now. It's patchy. There are some. We, uh, we actually got to windrow some canola a couple of days ago, which might be a bit interesting after these 40k's winds today. Hopefully there's something left to pick up in a few days' time. But it's basically wait and see what the header does when it gets in there. A bit patchy, yeah. Well, let's um, uh, talk to one of the other uh, delegates here at the at the conference, Emily uh, Cinderberry. Good afternoon. Welcome to the country house. Thank you, and welcome to Condo, as Freddie said. Now you're you're local too, so you're just down the road. Uh, yeah, I actually live an hour north of Condo, um, a bit further out past Freddie. So, uh, yeah, Condo is home and local. Your neighbours. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and your season. Your season similar. Yeah, yep, very similar. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends how you look at it. It's, it could be worse, um, but it could also be better. So, yeah. So crops, did you get many crops in, do you think, this year that, you know, and they're still up and running or it's, you've given up the ghost? Uh, yeah, no, we've got some at Bobada that are looking um, promising back on the home block, um, which is 50Ks out of condo. They're not looking as good. We just had um, a little bit of rain a bit earlier than the other blocks. So um, we are feeding some stock. Um, but, yeah, we do have some crops going along and loosen as well. So, yeah, it's OK. So you're hanging on to some crop, some uh, stock because the prices are so crappy. Yeah, and also, yeah, breeding stock. Um, so, yeah, we're trying to push them through. Of course, this time a year ago, um, where we're standing was uh, had water lapping at the door. That's that, the extensive flooding um, had such an impact on on paddocks and crops and and uh, everything out on the land. Uh, what's the um, soil moisture looking like, and how much you've managed to retain from those wet years now that we're heading into summer? And what what we're being told is going to be a pretty warm, dry summer. Yeah, I think um, we're, we're a long way from the river, obviously, but we still had a lot of water last year. So um, we were actually finding there's, there was a lot of subsoil moisture um, and not that far down either. So there was, there's moisture there, but there doesn't seem to be as much growing, whether that was the type of winter we had or... Um, yeah, so I think, I think there, there is moisture, but it will dry up very quickly. Oh, I might go back to you, Freddie, about the, the flooding. You know, how did you fare in that? Oh, so us living 70Ks, uh, our house was moved in 1927 to where we live and it must have been the lowest spot on the whole of the farm sort of thing. So we were getting in and out on a motorbike up our driveway for a good six weeks sort of thing. Instead of taking six weeks for harvest, it or not six weeks, sorry, um, three or four weeks for harvest, it took us probably three or four months to finish it. We had, uh, I think my daughter Mandy counted the number of boggings. It was something like 28 boggings during harvest and that was we got off lightly and, and water water everywhere for that whole period of time yeah our main roads were closed actually because the trucks had actually gone through them roads that hadn't actually had trucks go through them so for people to get through we actually had to open up part of our property and kind of have the main traffic flow through there and then people were kind of parking cars one side and we'd ferry them from the other side in a side by side or a motorbike so it was tricky even living that far out of town yeah well, this is what we're hearing about a lot of the roads that the you know and driving out here as well. So the roads are less than ideal now too. I mean, you know, and it's you know a year on from the floods and more. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's pretty rough, and um, I just don't think there's enough funding around for the port. I think Lachlan Shire might be one of the largest shires, you know, one of the road networks sort of things. So for them to get around with it. Thing. but honestly we, we, we're lucky like they do try they do get graders out our way every so often but uh, she's pretty rough at the moment I was just thinking after the few trucks that do use it this year it's going to be interesting 
You're listening to The Country Hour. We're broadcasting from Condoblin from the Central West Farming System Women and Youth Summit. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. On ABC Radio, the time now is 13 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales. And let's head down and uh, talk to a couple of other people here. First of all, um, Trini Copeland is here. And um, Trini, well, let's talk to you about the event. I mean, what have you got out of today so far? Uh, I love coming to these events, um, just making connections with people and listening to uh, other stories. It's fascinating. And um, we're a bit, you know, as Freddie said, a bit isolated and um, just we don't get out very much. And so it's really nice to catch up with people and to see people that we know from other areas. Well, that's the thing, being, you know, having a focal point where you can all get together, have a bit of a yarn, talk about what's been happening, that sort of stuff. And, you know, yeah, and talk about some of the... The issues that are affecting people at the moment too. Yeah, also there's uh, very inspirational talkers here today and, you know, to get a little bit of inspiration, sometimes you lose your mojo during floods last year, for example, Um, so it's really nice to sort of, you know, get that spark back and listen to these fantastic women. Tell us about the floods then, how did it affect your place? Um, Yeah, we're right on the river, so we had 2,400 acres underwater. Uh, We were cut off for eight weeks totally from isolated and 12 weeks, you know, um, driving through 60 mils of water and we were harvesting at the time when we had to bag everything because there was no way a truck could get in or out and and we also had lots of um, header boggings and tractor boggings. so that was, it was, yeah, very um, difficult. But, you know, it's, we've fixed it all up now. and we So we didn't have a summer crop last year, but we've got cotton going in this year and we're halfway through planting and about to start watering this afternoon. <laughs> okay, right. And you had a bit of rain, so that would be useful for your summer cropping. Yeah, we and also our winter crops. We got our wheat in late Um and we thought, you know, with all that subsoil moisture, it would be fantastic because we were harvesting last year as the floods receded into the, like, drying off. And, and, and the, the crops were okay if they had their heads out of water. But um, we thought, yay, beauty, this year there'll be heaps of um, subsoil moisture, but it just dried out so quickly. It just turned the taps off. And our crops are still a little bit green so that rain the other day we got between 20 and 24 mils um just saved you know probably went from a two bag crop to a six bag crop hopefully we're quietly yeah optimistic. absolutely i've um, been out to interview your husband jock um about three years ago and uh, had a look at the cotton that's growing there uh tell me about the reason to get into that uh, that uh crop I guess and I, what are the challenges because you're just based between Condoblin and Lake Kajelico, uh, what are the challenges of growing it? Uh, yeah, Jock and I have been in, oh, well, involved in some way in the cotton industry since the late 80s so we started off bug checking at Warren um, in those days it was a very different story, the insecticides and water usage were out of control and we've, it's come a long way since then, it's a really good news story um, we, we're fascinated by the crop, we don't use 
any insecticides on the place apart from seed, um, you know, coating. And every now and again, you'll have a white fly spray, but very rarely. Um, uh, it's all about nutrition and how to use, uh, how to grow more cotton per megalitre of water, trying to get the most out of your water. So we recycle water and save 25% of our water. And I find that extremely fascinating. My husband is agronomist, Jock's an agronomist, and he just loves it because it throws everything at you. It's a crop that you've got a baby from start to finish. Um, but the results are great if you can nail it. Uh, yeah, so we just love it. And it keep, yeah, it's just out of every crop we grow, we grow all sorts of different crops. But um, yeah, we're just passionate about it. What about logistically? I mean, you're a long way from the traditional cotton growing areas. Has that been difficult? Maybe it's a little bit easier now. Uh, logistically, yeah, it's difficult. It, we send all of our cotton to Trangy, or um, and it take you know it's a 250 kilometre trip, so uh, the turnaround's pretty slow. But um, yeah, we it's quite expensive, uh, but you know it's worth it still. So yeah, it's not. What about the pricing? You've been happy with the pricing, I mean, because it, um, you know, there there seems to be still that really strong demand for Australian white cotton. Yeah, well, cotton growers in Australia grow the best cotton in the world, even though it's only three percent of the world's cotton. Um, it's really white and bright, and um, yeah, no, the pricing has been fantastic. We've just locked in some more um, cotton at a really good price, and also. We're sort of getting a return for the seed because it's turned dry, so that make you know um, makes it even more lucrative. So. And you sound as though you're also quite happy with the sort of environmental benefits that you see from it. You know, being you know it's 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 not it's not as thirsty a crop as it used to be, and don't use as many chemicals as we used to either in the bad old days. Yeah, well, it, the story is getting better and better. I think um, that's you know there's been so much research and development in the cotton industry, all paid for by the you know private cotton uh, researchers, and um, it's just come such a long way in the last twenty years. Uh, we've been overseas and had a look at cotton, and we're just so far in front. It's it's I, I just think it's a great news story, and I think you know people don't hear about it enough, and I I. You know, we'd, we're sort of trying to be advocates for it, but, yeah, I, I think it, people are starting to understand that m- maybe it is a good good thing for Australia. But, I mean, there is, you know, talk about uh, cotton on marginal land and, the you know, water increasing water scarcity, but it, you, you think that the, the science is getting ahead of that? Well, yeah, and also that's got a lot to do with, allocation you don't it doesn't matter how much water you have on your farm you just grow what you can with the amount of water that you're allocated so we could grow corn but we'd be using more water per hectare uh, and a lot less water per dollar value so if you're looking for so the you've thought about it obviously yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, we do our gross margins all the time um, yeah and we don't grow it year upon year cotton grows you can't do that you you have to rotate with other crops. So, um, yeah, every year we grow a wheat cotton uh, rotation. So, yeah, we and all cotton growers do that. So, well, mostly, yeah. So, how did your wheat go this year? This year, it's not looking great. <laughs> it's that rain the other day helped. Oh gosh. Um, so we'll get a, get a harvest. We weren't very optimistic, but you yeah, know, it looks like we'll be getting some sort of harvest, which is good. Yeah. 
better than probably other people are faring too. Yeah, yeah, sounds like um, uh, the uh, situation uh, was uh, not great this year around this area and just look, as I say, there are not many crops around as you see driving around the place either. Trini, uh, thanks very much for joining us on the program today. Thank you, Condo. <laughs> Welcome to Condo. <laughs> You're listening to The Country Hour. We're broadcasting from the Central West Farming Systems, the uh, the summit, uh, youth and uh, women and youth regional summit uh, here at uh, Condoblin. And we're joined now by someone who's not a local, Christine Weston, who's actually, you've been on The Country Hour a few times before talking about Cumnock and your uh, dollar rent as well. I think we've uh, spoken to you before probably 10 years ago? Yes, that's right. No, I've um, driven two hours today from um, Cumnock to be here. These events are just so critical for empowering our regional and youth women in in our areas. And yes, I guess 10 years ago when I was um, New South Wales Woman of the Year, Parliament House and Sydney, um, you know, I joined the women on boards and, you know, I'm very love to advocate, you know, trying to empower women and having the condo girls, the high school girls over here today, that's fantastic. But to see 150, you know, women in the in this venue today is just fantastic. And there's three keynote speakers today. And I guess to the other thing is, so the the accent on youth and on women, and you know, also trying to get people involved in regional towns, regional communities, agriculture. That's that's the accent. Uh, yes, definitely. Well, we just heard from the first keynote speaker was Claire Braun. She's from Women's on Boards. And just her saying, you know, um, there used to be, when she started 20 years ago, only 7% of women on boards on the um, ASX. And today there's 37%. So, you know, there's an increase. So we just have to sort of keep on keeping on and, you know, empowering through and making sure that women out here, you know, they're so critical as, as far as the social fabric goes of these communities. And, you know, also not just agriculture, education, health. So, you know, it's just we want more women on board and we want um, more women involved in you know, regional, rural um, affairs. A couple of years ago, Michael and I, along with uh, some members of the rural team at ABC, came out to Cumnock and uh, did an outside broadcast in the park there for the 75th anniversary of the Country Hour, uh, which was amazing. And just to see how the town's going, of course, you're a strong um, and well-known voice for the, for the town. Um, how would you describe a community like Cumnock, um, having had some really good rain over the last three years? You mentioned about 30, 35 millimetres last week as well. Uh, how are things in a, in a community like Cumnock fairing at the moment? Uh, yeah, no, Cumnock's doing, doing very well. Um, it has been touch and go with, in the agriculture space. Uh, we did get between 25 and 35 mils last week. Um, but, you know, the week before that, we did put our sheep into our canola crops. So we have, um, it's very, you know, patchy. Um, the wheat uh, and barley are looking good. Um, our cattle and sheep are look, look fat and health, healthy. But as you know, you know, this week we sold um, lambs for $25. But this time last year, we, we would have sold them for $125. So, you know, we're still, you know, on the edge. Um, I mean, we've certainly seen, been through a lot, drought and floods. We were fortunate not to have the floods in Cumnock. Um, they had them nearby in Molong. Um, so, you know, it certainly does affect us all. But, it's you know, these days like today, it's all about us women sticking together and making sure that we can, you know, assist our husbands and assist our communities to get through. Um, so, yeah, we're very fortunate that um, Cumnock is a, a strong little community. Um, so, you know, it'd be very, it's interesting to hear, that particularly Claire, because she was from Ebor, she was a regional woman, and Phoebe Clift is speaking later on, and she's from Spring Ridge. So, you know, hearing these, I guess, past experiences or... Um, I guess what other agricultural women have experienced and given tips from them, you know, we're just, we're very fortunate to have this event on today. And I guess too the other thing is uh, Cumnock itself, 
you know, uh, it, it had a sort of national profile for quite quite a while there. And I, I guess, did that did that help the town? Did it hinder the town? I mean, you know, it's a positives and negatives, I guess, for a while. Oh, yes. Well, the rental farmhouse for $1 a week, um, that was very successful because we got, you know, 30 um, kids at the school and saved the school and the, and the coffee shop and, you know... Um, and that's Some tradies as well in there as well? Oh, yes, exactly. Air conditioning, we've got plumbers and tradies. Um, and now those houses are, you know, are all fixed up and lived in. Um, you know, 10 years ago, we were $100 a week for rent. Now it's $350 a week rent. So there's certainly... But what also came out of that was um, Andrew Denton did the story at, at Trundle which we you know is not too far away from here um, and that was all you know the pluses and minuses but you know we just we do certainly want more people moving out into these regions uh, but yeah no Cumnock's doing very well and our little um, general store community store has just been taken over by the community so that's going so that'll put us back on the map but it's um, no we're very very lucky where we are we've got you know the Dubbo Zoo's just down the road so we run five Airbnbs so we've got a lot of people particularly over the school holidays coming um, and with the baby new hippopotamus that was born. We have lots of people coming from Sydney and stopping in our little community and, and, and spending money and that's what it's all about is, you know, I guess trying to improve the um, financial economy. If we haven't, can't rely on agriculture during drought and floods, then hopefully we can get the external dollar to come from Sydney and spend their money. Yeah, a little bit of tourism from Sydney and um, uh, but the general store, interesting because that's had a bit of a chequered history, hasn't it? You know, ownership closed down, the, you know, changing owner, that sort of thing. It's, they, but they're sort of vital for communities, aren't they, those sorts of general stores? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, in the 25 years I've been living in Cumnock, um, there has been three different owners, but I think that's not just Cumnock, it's every little little community. Um, you know, just driving through Bogengate today, I was so excited to see, you know, Jessica Rowe said that they stopped and had photographs, you know, and chatted to the gardener in Bogengate. I just thought, you know, Bogengate, you know, I used to play on those tennis courts and it was heartbreaking to see them fallen down, but the government's put money into them, they're coming back. The Bogengate, Bogengate pub has got karaoke and there's lots of, so it's, you know, it's not just Cumnock, there's all these little communities, we're all in the same boat and we just have to be sharing our our stories and sharing our successes so we can sort of, um, it's a bit like rent a farmhouse, you know, do it into another town but tell them how we did it and what we didn't do or did do and what we, how we failed or how we succeeded and then hopefully we can grow a stronger rural community. But it did grow out of the, Cumnock did grow as a community and, you know, a lot more people there and, and moving away and people really excited to be a part of regional communities. Oh, that's right. I mean, Little Athletics started up, you know, when we, 10 years ago, and that's huge now. Like, people travel from, you know, Yeovil, Molong, um, Manildra to be a part of our Cumnock Little Athletics. And, and that, we wouldn't have done that if that person hadn't moved from Adelaide and started it. And now we've got, you know, Nigel, who's taking the bull by the horns and is running it. And it's such a, little things like that that have just come back, you know, that's just gold in our little communities. And so hopefully we can replicate that in other areas. And today, like, I'm excited to hear from, you know, these, the other speakers here. So you've got, you know, bookkeepers and accountants and amazing women that have done amazing things. And, you know, there's, there's lots of silent heroes here. So we really have to um, you know, promote more of them and hopefully um, save our region. That's quite right. Yeah, silent heroes. That's, we'll, we'll, we'll end it on that note. That's a, that's a great little saying. Christine Weston, thanks for joining us on The Country Hour today. Thank you, Michael. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales.
Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Both sides in the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum make their final pitches to voters. Israel says its blockade of Gaza will not end until Hamas releases hostages taken during last weekend's attacks. And deep dive, genetic researchers say they've mapped the DNA of a famous orca which helped humans hunt whales off the New South Wales south coast. Those stories and more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. And in a few moments' time, we'll have the news headlines and also we'll have uh, the news uh, as well, the news headlines with with Adam Storey uh, and looking at the weather because uh, everyone's uh, those big storms that went through yesterday. We might uh, hear about uh, what's in store for the state shortly from the Weather Bureau as well. But before we do that, let's uh, find out uh, some more news about money for flood rebuilding and uh, rejuvenation because the federal and New South Wales government, they've provided an update on how that $260 million that they previously had announced earlier this year that they were going to spend that money, uh, they're announcing what it's going to be used to to build back better after the floods. It's a, a total of 136 uh, projects across the state focusing on roads, bridges and drains. Just to bring us a bit more detail of that, uh, we're joined in the studio by David Clawton. So uh, where's the money going to be spent? Yes, well, some of the money is going off into community projects, but this is, this is the infrastructure list, and maybe that will raise a little cheer in some small towns around the place. Bigger's getting $2 million for the Nethercote Road, a million for roads intersecting the Barrier Highway west of Ningen, another $1.1 for the Brenda Gaduga Road, where they're installing a couple of culverts, $7 million for drainage in Byron, but also $7 million for the Lismore Gunalalaba uh, Fire Station. 1.3 for the Glen Innes Airport, 3 million for the Karawong Road Causeway um, in the Goulburn Council area, a million for some unsealed roads. A big problem with unsealed roads in the western areas. Uh, that's in Gunnedah. 4.5 mil for the Jamboree Mountain Road and others in that area, 2.3 for the Coonabarabin Road, 1.1 for the Denman Water Supply. They'll be really happy about that, I suspect. 3 mil for the ambulance station at Mullumbimby, quite a few million for New South Wales Parks and Wildlife Projects. A lot of them um, based around walking tracks to promote tourism and one and a half million for the sewage station at Nambucca maybe the oyster growers would be happy about that there was some problems there with sewage I think in in some places five million for the Violet Street Bridge at Narrabri over a million for the North Head Drive at Maruya four million for Cessnock where you just were uh, for uh, Thomas Street and North Rothbury and nearly a million for uh, Coonamble to fix the Quambone Road and the Urone Gully Causeway. And quite a few schools have got significant funding, including those at Broadwater, Tumblegum, Cabbage Tree, Condong, Wardell and Blakewood. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking that when the announcement came out, it was going to be mainly for the North Coast, but it's, uh, it's for the whole state. Yeah. Although I think the lion's share of the money, $7 million for Byron, $7 million for Lismore, um, you know, those, I think it looks as though the North Coast is getting the lion's share of the money. Yep. Mm. Yep, no doubt we'll uh, we'll hear more about that later on. Uh, David, thanks for that. Thank you. It's uh, coming up to 28 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. And uh, shortly, as I said, we'll uh, be heading to Israel to find out the terrible toll that uh, has been taken on agriculture as a result of the Israel-Gaza war. And, of course, that's uh, still continuing. But before we do anything else, he's been waiting patiently again. He's, he's, that's all he does. He just waits patiently. Very patient. <laughs> Adam Story. Good patient. afternoon. Some news headlines today. Uh, yes, yes, I have those. You have some? <laughs> okay. Well, you, that's right. Well, okay. we can leave now. That's good. Uh, of course, it's um, it's uh, all uh, 
uh, Israel, Gaza, um, but uh, the uh, federal government here is in talks with Egypt uh, to try to ensure Australians can leave Gaza safely. Uh, it turns out there is 19 Australians who've made contact, including a family of four from Adelaide. They've told the Department of Foreign Affairs they want to get out. Um, uh, uh, Egypt hasn't exactly opened the opened the gates. Um, they're very reluctant to uh, to let people leave uh, through that corridor. Uh, now, 222 Australians are booked to go on the repatriation flight from Tel Aviv early tomorrow. That's one of two Qantas flights uh, that will fly people to London. Now another two flights have been organised. Uh, they will fly from Israel, but they will uh, fly to Dubai uh, rather than London. In Israel itself, the military chief there has declared that now is the time for war. The uh, more signs of a ground uh, a ground invasion uh, with tanks amassing near the Gaza Strip. Uh, they've uh, the uh, Nick Dole, an ABC correspondent, says he's sending a number of units and they've dug themselves in and uh, basically have everything pointed uh, towards Gaza. So that's they're thinking Sunday, I think Nick the, Dole yeah, was saying. Sunday. Yeah, mm. I would say in the next year, next couple of days. Uh, in other news back home, the chair of the inquiry into safety on New South Wales buses uh, says they're not recommending uh, seat belts on buses in the cities and major metropolitan areas. They, they are recommending them uh, for rural areas and, and where there is uh, uh, where you're allowed to travel at high speed. The argument being in the city is that they travel at much lower speeds and people are constantly getting on and off. Uh, so that won't be happening. Of course, referendum day tomorrow. Don't forget to vote. And there's another election. Uh, the New Zealanders go to the polls tomorrow uh, with Chris Hipkins, who replaced uh, Jacinda Ardern. Uh, now, the polls saying he's showing defeat, but it's... Uh, pretty close. Pretty close. Mm -hmm. um, and whoever does gain power is probably likely to have to share power with um, probably New Zealand first. So um, whoever, whoever gains power will be a Chris... They're both Chris. Yes, Chris that's right. Chris. Yes, that's right. The yeah. battle of the two Chris's. Battle of the two Chris's. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll uh, see yeah. how that pans out as well. Yeah. But yes, yeah, looks looks pretty tight, I'd say. Yeah. We know we know what polls are like. Well, as a <laughs> uh, a uh, Kiwi friend of mine reminded me, uh, the last election they were way out. Mm. Uh, they were predicting oh, right. a, they were predicting a win for the Nationals. Yeah, they were uh, too. You're and right. uh, apparently, mm. I think Jacinda walked it in. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yes, similar to some of the polls in uh, the Victorian state election as well. I think. Yes, yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. All right. Well, thanks uh, for that. Polls. There's only the one polls, poll that yeah, counts. Yeah, that's right. It's exactly. That's quite the, right. And that's mm. the quarterly ratings. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yes, you worry about that. Well, you, won't, you lose, you lose sleep over that well, one. Well, yeah, there's a lot of conversation out there. <laughs> All right, thanks for that, Adam. All right, Adam's story there will be back with us at uh, one o'clock. You're listening to the Country Hour. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. Jack Phillips at the bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So we've had that sort of wild weather move through the state. Is it all gone now? Yeah, almost. Uh, that change that uh, affected the bulk of the state uh, yesterday or overnight is now right up in the northeast corner, and that's going to push across into the Queensland side of the, on the Queensland side of the fence in the not too distant future. So it's pretty much all done and dusted, but still fairly cool and gusty in its wake. And looking further ahead, what can we expect? Is it heating up or any more rain? 
It'll stay cool uh, for the next day or two, but it'll warm up a little bit through the second part of the weekend. Not a lot in the way of rainfall, although over the last 24 hours in the southeast we had some okay falls in a few spots. Uh, Bombala picked up 19 millimetres in the last 24 hours. Near the coast, Badala 15 millimetres. And a few places through the central west picked up between 2 and 5 millimetres. So not a huge amount. And that'll be the story for the next week as well. Not much rain for most districts. In fact, a lot of places will stay completely dry. Down right. around the southwest slopes, though, we might see some more showers over the coming days. So shower, just showers. And warming showers. up, though? Yeah, warming up. So we'll get uh, pretty warm across the north again by Sunday and even parts of the east as well, nearer the coast. But it's going to be fairly short-lived because there's another cold front pushing through on Monday. So that'll, uh, there'll be some fairly warm air ahead of that, particularly in the northeast on Monday. So high fire danger or even extreme fire danger is a risk again for Monday, just before that front. But that'll bring some cooler air and again some fairly gusty conditions with it as well as it moves through on Monday. And then we'll be seeing pretty cool conditions through uh, the middle of next week and even some uh, inland frosts again, particularly around uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. It's looking like we could see some frosts, not just on the tablelands, but southern inland as well. So we're starting to get towards the, the end of the frost season, but it's still still out there occasionally. Mm, yes. And, uh, some, well, I don't know how many crops there are that might be frost-affected at the moment in those uh, in areas that normally get them. But uh, anyway, that's uh, the warning goes out. If you've got some crops there, you might get a bit of a frost next week. Yes, that's right. And then things look like warming up again towards the end of next week. But no significant rain on the horizon, sadly. Um, but not warming up a lot, not, not getting into the sort of 30s, nothing, high 30s or anything like that? Nothing too crazy, no. It looks like we'll, we will get into the low 30s, um, even on Sunday across the north before that change. But then towards the end of next week, we could start to get into the low to mid 30s across the north and west by sort of Thursday, Friday of next week. But there's nothing really um, outrageously hot on the horizon at the moment. All right, Jake, thanks for that. Thanks, Michael. Jake Phillips at the Bureau there. It's 21 minutes to one. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Orange was once known as the Apple City with hundreds of orchardists spread across the region in the 1980s and 1990s, but the industry has faced considerable challenges in the past 20 years with the number of fruit producers in Orange falling to around a dozen. Michael Cunial is a third generation producer near Nashdale and he told Hamish Cole with the price of apples rising by less than a dollar since the early 2000s, they've decided to pull up their 80 hectares of apple trees. Well, the industry has pretty much slowly declined as far as making money out of apples. We've gone through a, a huge process of intensifying plantings, so we're getting more tonnes per hectare. <clears throat> that was a way we could make more money out of the same amount of area, which which worked actually quite well. We, we produced a lot more tonnes per hectare from back in the 70s um, to now in the 2000s. But that came with its own problems with oversupply locally. Uh, we haven't got a strong export market. And then since sort of the 90s onwards, we've had huge added costs, a lot more electricity bills, labours shot up, um, chemicals, uh, you name it, wherever we turned, uh, things were going up, but our prices weren't going up. You might see in supermarkets that they're always pretty stable, but uh, 
the grower themselves didn't get much money. And what's it been like in the last 12 months with all the cost of living as well? Has that contributed to it further uh, with those pressures? Well, I mean, the, the cost of living trickles right back to the producer. So, you know, the inflation um, that normal households feel, it's similar in business, I suppose, in agriculture especially. The, the Just fertiliser, just to pick something, you know, just skyrocketed, you know, it was five times the price in some cases. So um, that's got to trickle down to the end user eventually. And and for you, you're a third-generation Apple producer. How did it feel to to get rid of your trees? It was a huge relief. Um, sentimentally, it's really sad because, you know, we've got photos of my grandfather starting the orchard. Uh, there's huge amounts of work, and um, especially with all the intensity that we did Say in the last um, 15 years, it was huge capital outlays. But to have the relief off your shoulders of um, all the uh, that added costs and the not knowing what was going to happen in the future. I mean, we had some of the nicest apples you could produce around the place. But, you know, what's the point in chucking good money after bad, I think? And what do you think this says about the apple industry? Do you think... Uh, is there concerns that it's just becoming no longer financially viable for a lot of you know, family producers? Definitely, there's definitely a case of that. The sad part is the medium-sized guys are the hurting the most. Um, where you've got to employ staff, um, the small guys tend to do it in-house with family and can um, work through it. And the really big boys have got relations with supermarkets and pack for the medium-sized guys um, so they can they can actually make money through their packing house and lose money on their own orchard. So, um, yeah, it is getting a tight... You know, it's, it's like anything. If you work really hard, you can make money, but um, you can also lose a huge amount of money if you make mistakes. Orange-based apple producer Michael Cunial speaking there to Hamish Cole about their decision to leave the industry. Fellow grower Guy Gaeta has been producing the fruit in Orange since 1986. He says they've gone from harvesting 700 tonnes of apples per year to less than 100. The prices, I've been doing this for 36 years, Amish, and um, they were better 36 years ago. And all the, all the stuff to grow them and the labour costs was nowhere near the cost of, that it is now. And, um, yeah, I'm just one of the lucky ones. I can sell my produce in Sydney direct, and I, I am one of the lucky ones, but anybody else uh, uh, selling to the central market, it's just starting to slide. Um, I don't even know how they're surviving at the moment. What does that mean for the, the industry? Do you think that you know the producers are under this kind of pressure with the, the, the price of apples, which, as you said, it hasn't really changed in the last 20, 30 years? Yeah, without the people, they've been doing it here. In Orange, they've been doing Shepparton and uh, everywhere else. They just screwing them with a bulldozer. And that's your, at least that cost you any more money. And, I mean, we just can't keep growing fruit and vegetable or produce below production cost. It is a huge shame. I mean, we came to Orange in 1986, Amos. I was a really young fella. And um, there was 222 orchardists in Orange. There is now 12. 12. That all disappeared. 
you know, with all these these issues, Guy, you know, what has that meant for the amount of apples that, that you guys are producing? Have you reduced your, your apple operation? Oh, de- definitely. We, we used to grow 15 years ago um, just on around 2,000 bins of apples. We now we don't, we don't, we don't even count them anymore. We barely 300. And um, and we just we really grow on just to have some a small income on the off season top of the stone fruit. Um, but we used to grow some of the best stone fruit out in in the orange district. Beautiful nectarines, not huge sizes, and that. At the time came, they just could not afford to grow them because um, when you get four dollars a tray, it doesn't even pay for the picking virtually in the box. So. It, 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 everything is against us. There is no... Unless the government gets involved, I might not be around in the near future, but they don't get involved, they're going to be looking for food, and they're going to be looking for food from overseas because um, we aren't going to have it. Apple producer Guy Gaeta speaking there with Hamish Cole about the challenges facing the apple industry in the Orange region. It's 14 to 1. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, the Israel-Gaza war has taken a terrible toll on agriculture. Farmers in the south of Israel were among the first hit by the attacks by Hamas. And many farmers, young people working on the kibbutz and also the foreign workers were killed or taken hostage. I mean, Porat is the biggest grower of carrots in Israel and farms in the north where things are quieter. He explained to David Clawton what the impact has been on the farm sector so far. The south part of Israel, which is, I think, um, at least half, or uh, around half of the of the agriculture um, growing in the in this part of Israel, uh, is absolutely mess. It, it's a war zone, so all the areas are, most of the areas are unreachable for the moment. And, Were those areas um, evacuated? Some some kibbutzes, which are the main, uh, the biggest maybe growers organization in the south, are evacuated or you know, unfortunate. I, I spoke with, with with a friend of mine there. He told me, Amir, look, the people, the ground, the ground workers, the field workers, even the type workers that that came to Israel to work and provide to their families. Most of those people are gone. They've been killed, or have been taken. A lot, a lot of the of the field farmers were taking place in the in the um, uh, teams of groups of uh, to guard the the kibbutz or or the place. There were like the the civilian force of of protecting the the, the kibbutz, for instance. Yep. And the majority of them, naturally, because they're young young people. Men's were were from the fields, from of farmers, and those those um, groups vanished, have been murdered. They even killed the Thai workers, which are foreigners in Israel. Uh, so, and, and just describe no, the agriculture in those areas. Is it, is it largely yeah, based yeah, on the so, kibbutz, or so is it what sort of things are they growing? The kibbutzes, the kibbutzes are. Um, 
big players on the agriculture in the south in my industry only maybe maybe 60 or 70 percent of the carrots is growing in the south part of of israel so what impact is that having on on your business my business is that i received a phone call what whatever i can do to enlarge we are now we're drilling uh, we're sitting now so whatever i can do to enlarge um and for, because they don't know what will be the damage yet for the fields themselves for now to cover some of the losses expected in the south so we will do everything we can to do that um, and they will also damage the uh, the Hamas damaged the water so a large pumping uh, station damage it yeah so the pumping stations were damaged and burned and some of the fields uh, without the capability to, to, to water, to irrigate. Those areas as well are huge in citrus and avocados, which, by the way, were the places the, um, the second and the third day most of the tourists were hitting inside those orchards. That's what I, I heard. Hiding, you're right. Um, it's, everything is, is, is frozen and stopped. They cannot walk freely around. They cannot work their farm the, the border has been secured, though, hasn't it? So I'm, I'm the assuming border, they will be able to get the back. Control, yeah, yeah. The control seems to be back to Israel, but still, every every hour at least, uh, a few alarms. It's not hours. It's every few minutes, alarms and missiles being shot whenever they will fell in the, in the civilian area. Mm. So you sit in your living room and you have 15 seconds to run away from a rocket or missile or whatever. It's very right. hard to work that the farms that way. Yes. And the workers are uh, a big, put, uh, nobody knows the exact numbers, but a big uh, number of workers are gone. Right. Evacuated or gone. I, I know about a milk farm in Alumim, in, in one of the kibbutzes that them was hit very hard. They have no one to treat the cows. Uh, no way to water it. No one to milk the cows. So they will f- they will search for volunteers, and I know they found volunteers from other milk farms in the central of Israel or in the north that came to support. Otherwise, the cows will be damaged as well. Yeah. What about the ports? Are, are they also the ports, affected? Look, Haifa, Haifa port was working one hundred percent in the north. No changes in his schedule. Some ships, I, I understand, or I can, I can guess, uh, moved for that port. Ashdod, which is the main southern, western, uh, south, central port, naturally stopped and work irregularities. So I know this morning, I think, is working. And so is that affecting um, imports as well? It like? cannot work naturally. No. Sorry? Is that affecting imports as well? I don't know. I, don't, I cannot tell you. I don't have the right information. I know the port, uh, at least every day, is stopped for a few hours mm. because of the alarms and the missiles. And would you also they get food exports and imports through the international airport in Tel Aviv? Yes, not in the carrot industry, but in the other fruit and, and businesses is working. They heard, they're, they're trying very hard to hit uh, Ben-Gurion, the, the international airport. For the moment, it, um, it was working uh, almost regularly. And what will happen in the next few days, do you think? First of all, I hope 
I hope um, in the north it will keep quiet. This is the a main uh, factor of stability. If uh, Hezbollah will join the party, as we said, it will be um, a much different situation. That How are you preparing uh, for that possibility? Everyone has his uh, shelter ready um, and gather food and water and pr and pray and pray for quiet times. So it's very I don't think they will they can be quiet. Would many farmers be, be trained in the defense? Would many farmers be involved in any action in Gaza, do you think? I am a, I was a soldier, of course. I served in a special unit. I was an I am an officer. A, a lot of my friends, which are farmers, <laughs> the one who survived the first few days is is in the army now. Right. Um, because it's young people, young men, who called to the reserved to help the, fight the war. Karagroa Amir Porat speaking there to David Clawton about uh, agriculture in the uh, Israel-Gaza war. It's six to one. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Before we go to markets, live export prices to Indonesia are falling. A 350-kilogram feeder steer out of Darwin Port is now getting about $1,000 less than what it was 18 months ago. Demand from Indonesia is slow, and a lot of exporters are now targeting the port of Townsville, where the cattle are even cheaper. Gary Riggs from Lakefield Station in the Northern Territory says he went to the trouble of putting together a special consignment of blemish-free cattle only to be offered $2.60 a kilo, which for him wasn't enough, so he put them back in the paddock. Yeah, we got notified saying there was an order coming up about three weeks, a bit over three weeks ago. So we uh, trapped our paddock, our steer paddock, and dug out six decks of steers. And uh, we're hearing all these things going on about cattle getting rejected and, and uh, with, with blemish, skin blemish and breed types and all sorts of stuff. And then I'm, I'm thinking, oh, well, it's probably not going to be that good for us anyway because we do have centre pole cross steers, and, which are very heavy cattle. And anyway, we sort of went along for a bit longer than the day before yesterday. I got an order come out and offered to me for those six decks of steers at uh, $2.60 with... Uh, no blemishes whatsoever, and they had to be high-grade ramen. So I just spoke back to my agent and said, right we, uh we're going to bush these cattle off today, and we'll we'll go again next year when hopefully when everything settles down." Wow! So you put together six decks, and they're now back out in the paddock. That's exactly yeah. We just turned them back back into the paddock and. Uh, yeah, they're going to be heavy fellas next year. You know, they average 356 kg when we weighed them all uh, just the other day. So they're going to be pretty damn heavy by the time next year comes around. But, yeah, but you know, we're prepared to take that. I'm, I'm not prepared to take $2.60. And, 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 and the other thing we had to contend with, they would come out and how many were they going to reject to start with, you know. And, yeah, we could have been back as far as, four decks instead of six decks because, you know, like I said, we've got a lot of crossbred centipole ramen cross steers, which are bloody good steers, but 
But at the moment, they're not fitting into the description going up there to Indonesia. How challenging a time is this when you look back at all your years in the NT's cattle industry? Well, to me, it's getting back to where it was in the live export band. You know, we were sort of didn't know what direction we were going and, you know, where are we going to send cattle, how are we going to sell cattle and all sorts of, you know, things like that. And then, yeah, sort of, and then going back to the early days, you know, it was always challenging to put mobs, mobs of cattle together for to meet all the requirements. And But, yeah, this is this is a, just a different level, you know. These are, you know, they're good quality cattle and, and just being blocked up for a... a you know, a skin blemish, you know, and that blemish could be anything from a barbed wire scratch or obviously a buffalo fly bite or could have been, you know, just a rub in the cattle yards or a brand scar, just just things like that, you know. It's, you know, I find it fairly ridiculous, really. Gary Riggs is from Lakefield Station in the Northern Territory. He's speaking there to Matt Brand about uh, those uh, that consignment. Only it offered $2.60 a kilogram for a special consignment of blemish-free cattle. And uh, feeder steers out of Darwin Port are now getting $1,000 less than what they were 18 months ago. It's time for markets. Let's go from beef to lamb and to Griffiths. Good afternoon. More numbers at Griffith after last week's better results with 6,800 lambs and sheep supply more than doubling to 3,850 head. It was back to reality for mutton with sheep prices losing all the previous week's gains and a bit more to drag most sales back down to between $15 and $40 per head. The lamb market was also fairly subdued on a plainer run, with the young lambs not having that weight and quality of a week ago. Best sucker sold to $147 in a market quoted as similar to $5 easier on the lead pens that showed a bit of weight and condition. The general run of suckers lacking weight and bloom eased 8 to $10, with the majority of trade-weighted types from $85 to $120 to processors. Some recently shorn store suckers made $60 to $80, while secondary light lambs hit a tougher market and were cheaper at $30 to $60 for most. Jenny Kelly for MLA. And that's the market information for today and the end of a busy week for us here at the Country Hour. We'll be back on Monday, though, between 12 and 1. We'll talk to you then.